In a moment, Will is going to come and teach us from Romans chapter 16. And so I will read verses 17 to 20 before Will comes. Romans 16, verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the, of the naive. For, for your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Well, good morning, everyone. If you could keep that passage open in Romans 16, we're going to be looking at it together and thinking about the, the theme of, of false teaching, of its danger, and of how we're to, to avoid it. So, so as we think about that this morning, let's pray together for the Lord's blessing and help. Gracious God, I pray you would open my mouth so that I would um, speak wonderful things from your word. And Father, we pray too that you'd open our ears so that we would hear your spirit speak to us, we would heed what you say to us, and we would obey it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. In early March of last year, I don't know if you remember this particular news item, an Islamic State suicide bomber blew himself up at the rear of a military hospital in Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan. Now, in the chaos that ensued after that initial explosion, three other members of the Islamic State, dressed as doctors, complete with suits and white coats, made their way through the breach and into the hospital. They killed 38 people within the hospital complex, and they injured scores of others before they themselves were gunned down. One hospital employee, a witness, was interviewed afterwards and said that he saw a man dressed in a white doctor's coat take out an AK-47 assault rifle and open fire. Now, tucked within this long list of greetings in Romans 16, which, which weren't read to us earlier, but there's a long list of greetings at the end of Romans 16, which is often treated in the same way that, um, say, the um, genealogies of Chronicles are. We skip over them quickly. At the end of that list is this strong warning against the sudden danger of false teachers. It's a sudden warning. It's abrupt. False teachers are not prominent in Paul's letter to the Romans. They don't really appear anywhere else in the letter, and this is the only time that Paul mentions Satan in Romans. So why this sudden warning? The key, I think, is in, is in the contrast. So in verses 3 to 16 of Romans 16, Paul conveys greetings to 26 people by name, and many of them he calls dear friends, co-workers, some of them he commends for their sacrifice or their hard work or their faithfulness in the cause of Christ and of the gospel. And he also sends greetings to five different groups of believers, presumably the house churches within which the people gathered in Rome. And then we get this sudden warning. God wants us to know that there's a group of people who superficially look as if they're part of that same precious fellowship of believers. 
They look as if they too serve our Lord Christ, as Paul puts it in verse 18. But God wants us to know that they're in disguise. And superficially, they look as if they're co-workers in the same gospel mission. But actually, their mission is to destroy. They are destroyers in disguise. And that is why they're so dangerous. And that's why we get this sudden, abrupt warning at the end. That precious fellowship of believers that Paul has been commending and greeting in Rome is under threat from destroyers in disguise. Now, Paul does two things. He removes that disguise, he removes their disguise, and he clarifies what our response should be. And until we actually see through the disguise and realize who is actually underneath it, we won't know how to respond. So first we're going to peek beneath the doctor's white coat, and then we're going to find out how to respond uh, to the threat. So first, removing their disguise. The disguise is ripped off quite suddenly in verse 20 when Paul says that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. But but even before we reach verse 20, we get a peek beneath the doctor's coat. Look beneath this disguise and we'll see three things. Three things beneath the disguise. First, false teachers do Satan's work, verse 17. So the first distinguishing giveaway marker as to their true identity is that they cause divisions and create stumbling blocks contrary to the teaching that you have learned. There is, there's a teaching which we must measure all other teaching that we hear against, which he calls the teaching that you've learned. In um, Romans 6:17, earlier in the letter, he calls it the pattern of teaching to which you have become obedient. So he says, but thanks be to God that being slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart the pattern of teaching to which you have been entrusted. You get a a similar phrase in 2 Timothy 1, verses 13 to 14, where Paul calls it the pattern of sound words and the good deposit as well. So what Paul has in view is the apostolic gospel the preaching of the gospel, and the pattern or the web of truth that closely coheres with that gospel. So there are biblical foundations to it, and there are ethical implications that arise from it. And the whole forms a pattern, or it forms a web that centers on the glorious person, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what a faithful gospel minister does, like Paul, and this is what he's been doing in writing to the Romans, What a faithful gospel minister does is he clarifies, he deepens, he applies that good deposit. He he gets you to go deeper into the gospel. And Romans is a supreme example of such a ministry. A fake gospel minister opposes that teaching, causing divisions and creating stumbling blocks against it. He opposes God's word, bringing death to God's people. Now, typically where this word stumbling block is used, it refers to teachings or to practices that lead people away from Christ and towards apostasy from the gospel and then to final death and destruction. So opposing God's word with the result of bringing death to God's people is Satan's work. Think back to the Garden of Eden. What did Satan do? What did the serpent do? He opposed the teaching that Adam and Eve had received from God. He questioned God's word. Did God really say? He distorted it. Did God really say? 
that you shall not eat from any tree in the garden. He then denied it. You shall not surely die. And Adam and Eve stumbled against the teaching that they had learned. They fell and they died and the consequences were absolutely devastating. And the consequences are always devastating when, when Satan gets people to believe his lies. Now, one of the interesting things here in Romans 16 is that there's no indication that Paul actually has a specific group of teachers in view, nor is there any indication that they're already in Rome. This warning is as abrupt as it sounds. It's a warning to watch out for a particular group of people, a particular type of person who's always out there, who's always roaming about because Satan's always at work. Whatever the human appearance, um, there are legalists, there are Pelagians, there are Gnostics, there are antinomians, there are prosperity, prosperity teachers, universalists, and so on. There are so many different flavors. There are so many different human faces. But whatever the human appearance, they all do Satan's work. Someone who causes divisions and creates stumbling blocks against the apostolic teaching that person does Satan's work. So that's the first peak beneath the doctor's coat. The second peak beneath the coat is that false teachers use Satan's methods, verse 18. Satan's methods are deception and seduction. Or to be more precise, deception by means of seduction. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Notice that the whole of verse 18 gives the reason why the people of verse 17 are to be avoided. The danger false teachers pose and the reason they're to be avoided comes both from the way that they live, they don't serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites, and from the way they speak, smooth talk, and flattery that deceives. So, you know, think about it. False teaching is only dangerous if you believe it. It's only dangerous if you're actually lured in and deceived by it. And that's where verse 18 comes in. The combination of an idolatrous lifestyle of living for one's own appetites, whether it's money, whether it's sex, whether it's um, power, the combination of that and of winsome, flattering speech is an incredibly seductive one. It's a very seductive package. It appeals to the senses. It draws people in. This is one of the, you see this in the, in the natural world. It's one of the ways predatory animals behave. There, I'm told there's a, there's a puff adder from South Africa, the South African puff adder, that has a very um, toxic venom. I won't surprise you. It has an extremely toxic, deadly venom. But that's not the reason it's so dangerous. There are a lot of snakes like that. It's such a deadly predator because it cleverly uses its, its tongue in a way that mimics an insect's fluttering movements. It uses its tongue as a lure to deceive its victims by means of seduction. And that's the way false teachers work. They use their tongue as a lure. They use their lives as a lure. And notice that the people lured in, and this is a word that gets translated in lots of different ways, um, the word at the end of verse 18, the people lured in are the naive, they're the innocent, they're the unsuspecting. 
It's the word used in Proverbs for the simple. So in Proverbs, you've got the wise and you've got the foolish. And somewhere in the middle are the simple. They're not complete fools, but they're definitely not insightful or wise. They're simple, they're easily seduced, they lack the mature capacity to rightly discern truth from error and right from from wrong. In Eden, Adam and Eve, in their innocence, in their naivety and simplicity, were drawn in by the serpent's smooth, slippery talk and by his appeal to a tree that was pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. That's Satan's method. False teachers use Satan's methods. They use winsome, flattering, attractive speech. They offer a life of idolatrous satisfaction, and they prey on the innocent and the naive. Now here we are today at Moore Theological College, thinking about the danger of false teaching. Could we ever be in danger ourselves? I think one of the greatest dangers we face is to think that we, or our church, or our college, is immune to the lure, is immune to the seduction. Notice Paul commends them in verse 19 for their obedience to the gospel. So obviously you can be obedient to the gospel and still be drawn in. Or Paul can think that these Christians who are obedient to the gospel are in danger of being drawn in. In fact, it might be that verse 19 gives the reason why they're in danger. For your obedience to the gospel has become known to all. In other words, Satan preys on those who have responded to faithful gospel preaching. Those are Satan's targets, those who've become obedient to the gospel. Those are the ones he wants to draw back from life, back to death again. Satan knows that whoever we are, wherever we are, he can always appeal to our idolatrous desires because we all have them. False teachers are so dangerous, not simply because their teaching is destructive, but because it's seductive. They're destroyers in disguise. So, First peak under, under the coat, they do Satan's work. Second peak underneath that beautiful doctor's coat, they use Satan's methods. And thirdly, the disguise removed in verse 20, they serve in Satan's army. So notice that you've got a, a shift here from, the, from a warning to a promise. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now, how does a promise of God soon crushing Satan under our feet give us any confidence in the battle against false teachers if there's not an extremely close relationship between Satan and those who bring stumbling blocks against gospel teaching? The promise of verse 20 assumes what we've seen from those hints in verses 17 to 19. It assumes that false teachers serve in Satan's army. This is military language, the language of a decisive, complete conquest of the enemy. It's a reiteration, isn't it, of Genesis 3, verse 15. God told the serpent that the seed of the woman would one day come along and crush his head. And here the promise is reiterated to us. The crushing of the serpent's head 
renders the tale, the false teachers, lifeless. Because false teaching receives all its vigor, all its life, all its strength from Satan. Listen to these words in, from 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15, which, which confirms this. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. How do we respond? Quickly, three ways to respond to the danger of false teachers. First, keep your distance. Verse 17 is very clear, isn't it? Avoid them. Keep, keep away from them. In other words, don't extend one of these warm brotherly greetings that I want you to extend to Prisca and to Aquila and to Andronicus and to Junia. Don't extend one of those greetings to these people. So it, it's not like 1 Corinthians 5, which we had read earlier, which is a command to excommunicate someone from the church fellowship. This is a command to not even let them get anywhere near the church fellowship. It's a command to avoid fellowship with them in the first place. And the reason, as we've seen, to keep our distance is because Paul wants the false teachers to get nowhere near to the simple, to the, na to the naive. So we might think, oh, I can spot the heresy. But what about the person who's just come to faith? What about those people in the congregation who are easily blown around by every wind of doctrine? Do we love them enough to keep clear from false teaching? Now, one thing that's obviously ruled out by this command is giving a false teacher a platform to speak. For example, what Archbishop Welby did in inviting Bishop Michael Curry to preach at the royal wedding, that was obviously a serious neglect of pastoral duty. You never give a false teacher a platform to speak. But the question we need to ask ourselves goes beyond the, the issue of physical proximity, doesn't it? Because we live in a hyper-connected world. So we need to ask ourselves the question, does this action I'm about to undertake, this event I'm about to organize, this blog post, this tweet, this, this link on Facebook to an article by Steve Chalk, or whatever it might be, does this action that I'm about to undertake risk giving this false teacher or this group of false teachers influence over Christ's precious flock? Do I love them enough that I will keep them from that danger? Now, that's a question we very rarely ask, but we should. Do we fear more being seen as narrow than loving our brothers and sisters enough to protect them from Satan? Now, let's just remind ourselves that this command comes on the back of um, the most beautiful expression of the unity and diversity of Jesus' church. We haven't got time to look at this, but amongst those 26 people that Paul names from verses 3 to 16, you've got Jews and Gentiles, you've got male and female, you've got rich and poor, you've got slave and free, you've got all these people bound together in a unique fellowship of love and peace expressed in verse, six, verse 16 with this holy kiss this special greeting of fellowship, peace, and love in the early church. You could never accuse them of being narrow. You could never accuse Paul of being narrow in wanting to express greetings to, to this diverse group of people. 
There's nothing narrow about this command to steer clear of false teachers. It's the opposite. It's protecting that, that unity and diversity. Or do we fear being seen as divisive? The thing here is, of course, is that you can't avoid division, can you? The only question is what sort of division you're going to support in your ministry. Will you allow Satan's servants to divide Christ's precious people, or will you divide from them? You can't avoid division. It's impossible. Again, think back, <coughs> excuse me, again, think back to the Garden of Eden. Adam, Adam had care of the garden. It was a place of plenty, of beauty, of, of unity in God in the midst of a glorious diversity. Adam's care involved protecting that garden from the serpent. He should have banished Satan, and he didn't. Now, say Adam had banished Satan from the garden, as he should have, would that have been divisive? Yes. But divisive for the sake of truth. Divisive for the sake of beauty. Divisive for the sake of life. So keep your distance. Secondly, exercise discernment. Verse 19, your obedience has become known to all, therefore I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise with respect to the good and innocent with respect to the evil. This is a call for discernment, and it's crucial. You can't obviously keep your distance from, um, the, from the ISIS guy who comes into the hospital without discerning that he actually is a member of ISIS. You've got to discern that it is a false teacher. So if you're in the hospital and you see the Islamic State fighter enter, dressed as a doctor, you're not going to do anything unless you actually spot who it is. But then imagine that you are a bona fide doctor within that hospital, and you spot the ISIS doctor come in. But you respond just by shrugging your shoulders and laughing and saying, oh, it's ISIS, of course, that's what, that's what they do. That's what you expect. They're always doing this sort of thing. They're always dressing up and blowing up hospitals. I mean, what do you expect? That's not discerning. It's not enough to have the wisdom to spot the false teacher if we don't also have the innocence with respect to evil to distance ourselves from it. Now, for me, um, the low point of my study leave last semester was seeing the evangelical world's response to Bishop Michael Curry's sermon. Now, here are some of the responses very quickly because we're just closing in a moment. Many complimented Michael Curry on his passion and his warmth. That's like complimenting the ISIS fighter on the cut of his suit. That's not discerning, is it? Others, under the pretext of being peacemakers and wanting to keep Christians from dividing over our response, weighed up the good and the bad of his sermon. And that sounds very discerning. But that's not discerning, is it? It's like listing all the ways the ISIS fighter resembles a doctor and all the ways that he doesn't. Of course he resembles a doctor. Satan's servants always resemble doctors. They always come in disguise. The issue is not whether he resembles a doctor. The issue is whether that's a disguise, and that requires a greater level of discernment. Others spotted the smooth talk, the flattery, the exaltation of human ability, the, the thoroughly this-worldly hope and the anemic portrait of Jesus, and they shrugged their shoulders and said, oh, he's an Episcopal bishop. What do you expect? But that's not, discerning, that's not discerning either. When it comes to false teaching, we're not just dealing with truth and error, but with good and evil. Notice this is the way Paul says it. Be wise with respect to the good and innocent with respect to the evil. And I think the thing I notice is 
that a lot of young evangelical ministers speak up for issues of race, of abuse, of trafficking, of immigration, of the environment, and so on. And it's certainly right that we should. Those are moral and social issues that really matter. But what about false teaching? Will you speak up against false teaching because it's a moral issue that really matters? How good is the gospel? How precious is Jesus? How glorious is our hope? How sweet is the fellowship of the saints that we're about to celebrate in the Lord's Supper? An enemy that has the power to wrench all of that from someone's grasp and to deceive them into thinking that he's doing them good, that enemy is desperately evil. That's a moral evil that we should be speaking up against. Thirdly and finally, await Satan's destruction. Keep your distance, exercise discernment, await Satan's destruction. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's extraordinary that Paul adds your feet. It's not just Jesus who will win the messianic victory over Satan, which he will, but that we'll share in that victory and one day stand with Jesus with our feet on the throat of the enemy and every cost and every loss that comes from distancing ourselves from Satan's servants will be worth it. In other words, the image is hold out. It's not simply the case that reinforcements will arise to support you in the battle. It's that Jesus Christ himself will arise and soon he will come and crush the head of the serpent. Our work is not in vain. One day the God of peace will crush Satan under our feet. Amen.